All right. Welcome, everyone, to GraphQL FM once again. We had a little break there a few weeks without GraphQL FM, but we're back with an awesome guest. Uh, first, Tony, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine, Mark. Uh, and this is going to be a little bit confusing for me because I'm the only not Mark here. Uh, so we've got Mark with a C and Mark with a K. Um, I feel like maybe I should change my name uh, to like Mark with a Q or something. <laughs> I don't know. That was. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah i'm doing great awesome i'm pretty good uh with the c <laughs> it's good. oh i see we already yeah already be sure to use c versus k uh, i'm doing good um yep. let's introduce mark with a k right away uh we've got mark lara from yelp today how are you doing mark yeah i'm doing great thanks for having me on sweet so um let's get started right away i, I think the first thing i wanted to talk about is um if I remember back to my times, uh, I think back then it was Shopify, like Yelp was one of the first kind of like vocal company about like we're using GraphQL now. I remember seeing like the public API and everything. Can you talk about like how that came to be, like how Yelp decided to use GraphQL? Um, so the, the public GraphQL instance, I should mention, is a, uh, like it's owned by like a different team to the team that I work on. Um, I think we kind of launched the GraphQL endpoint to like our third-party Fusion API three, four years ago. I want to say. Um, so yeah, that that's like managed by a different team. So I, I'm probably not best placed to give an answer on that kind of stuff. Um, but we have some really cool blog posts announcing it, um, and I can probably share some links to that after after the stream. Great. Um, what about the internal part of it? Um, was that kind of like before or after? Did you adopt like kind of both at the same time? Okay, so yeah, so um, so the internal GraphQL stuff that that is something that my team um, worked on. So that was launched around. We started work on that uh, around two years ago. I'm going to say, and mm -hmm. that kind of came after a time of we'd, we'd just kind of finished um, converting over our front ends to. You know, React for, for a lot of big pages, and um, it's like this time of great transition. That we were in this space of um, we're a Python shop, and all of the data comes from like a bunch of different backend services in Python, and then you've got to like serialize this like big JSON blob of data, you know, in like a script tag or something, and then pass it to your React component, and then prop drill it down to where it's needed, and I don't know if people were like complaining, like, oh, this is so terrible because like maybe it's not a problem that you realize that you had. But um, like we knew GraphQL was a thing. And um, I think there had been like various attempts at internal GraphQL services before. But it kind of seemed like the right time to, to reevaluate and, and really try this. And we did some, um, you know, internal case studies to, to prove like the business case. and. Um, kind of like verify that, hey, this actually like saves us time on an average ticket on the business page. Um, so that kind of like really, yeah, drove us forward. Um, it's, it's interesting that uh, you did the third party API first and then uh, the internal use case came second. Um, was that like a intentional, like we'll try this out over here first and then see if it works for us or were you like, oh, this is so compelling yeah, um, I don't know if it was like much. I mean, we took inspiration from from the like public API in terms of GraphQL is an awesome technology, and like we're familiar with this as EL because of that, um, yeah. because of that experience. But um, it it's like a you know a, a different um, like use case entirely. There's like no sharing of the schema. <laughs> it's in a different right. language. It's written in Python. Um, yeah, I don't know if that kind of answers. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, like, what's the what's the context here um, around kind of like Yelp's architecture here? Are you um, are you dealing with a, a monolith or a bit more uh, like Tony's context with like microservices and everything? Yeah. So Yelp started in two thousand and four, and we um, have a lot of code, and it all started off in this like big monolith, and I think like other sort of companies we. Yeah, we still have this like big monolith, um, and we're trying to move. We've done a lot of great work actually recently on that, but um, yeah, we, we have like 
broaden back-end services for um, different entities, I guess you could say. And then we expose all that data through like these hundreds of, of endpoints, just random, you know, HTTP endpoints. And um, our GraphQL server um, is an abstraction, a public abstraction over all of those mm -hmm. endpoints. That makes a ton of sense. That seems like um, a definitely a common use case. So you are you've been using GraphQL for two years. You said now, so you must be like getting to like a a pretty large schema. Um, and I know one thing I really want to talk about is like how how you manage that. And recently, I think I'll post it in the chat. But uh, you wrote this amazing blog post uh, called the Dream Query. Um, um, and yeah, so I kind of want to talk about this. Um, can you talk about the the dream query that you call it? Like, it's a technique you use to kind of like scope down projects and define what you want to create, basically. Yeah, so it's it's solving kind of a couple problems. The dream query. So, um, okay, so imagine you're on a uh, a feature team and you're implementing a new page, or you are refactoring an existing page to use. GraphQL. Either way, you have like a set of data, a set of fields that you need to grab from GraphQL and display it in your components. So the idea is that you just write the query that you wish you know you could write if everything was magically available in the schema, and you can start off by just kind of like writing it and drafting it in a Google Doc. And then people can be like, oh, this um, field actually already exists, but it's called something else. Um, cool. And, and then you tweak it. And maybe some stuff just like doesn't exist in the schema. And that's fine, too. Um, it gives you a sense of like, OK, well, we're going to need to create like five resolvers. So that's going to equal this much time you know, for someone to implement. But then the really cool thing is once you have um, this query, stream query what we've done in a few cases is you just copy and like paste that verbatim into um, your top level components and for the fields that are available you can start using and you just kind of comment out the fields that aren't available yet and fetch them from somewhere else or put a to do thing and that provides you like a natural migration path because you can then like create tickets for each one of those fields that's commented out and um, yeah, split work up that way so it's it's we we've used it in, in quite a few um, quite a few projects and it, it kind of helps to teach uh, people what's available in the schema, uh, GraphQL syntax and, and kind of helps from the planning perspective as well. Yeah, I love the term dream query. Like that that's so like succinctly uh, captures the the approach that I've also heard this like as a um, like on college campuses they where they have like a big quad or you know a big central area and they don't pave it over until they've learned all the like desire paths where students will walk and then you have like the <laughs> the dream uh dream path yeah path, i guess yeah <laughs> that makes yeah. so much sense uh, that's, yeah that's a, like yeah. it it's such a it's so like simple when you think about it like just write the query you want like the query you want but it avoids so many pitfalls um that people usually get into like starting by like we often talk about this but, like starting by the database schema or like even starting with the graphql schema in this case like you might produce something that you don't like as much as if you wrote the query in the first place like focusing on the use case itself i wonder if um i, I know in your post you talk about mocking as well is that something like if a field is not available now can a client kind of like mock it while it's while it's being built or something like this Ooh, okay a uh, few, few thoughts there. Um, so number one, maybe not exactly what you're asking, but I have to talk about it because I love it so much, is GraphQL Faker. Um, so for people who don't know, GraphQL Faker is a, um, it's like a project that you can just spin up in a Docker container and you get a uh, GraphQL page you know, in, in Chrome and you can just start adding some dummy schema. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it kind of has like faker.js built into it, so you can get lorem ipsum type data out of those uh, out of that scheme without having to implement the resolvers. And then you can write a query against it. So um, for people wanting to 
try out the dream query in their like dev version of their app without you know implementing any resolvers they can they can do that um, that's kind of like a quick way to just like get a get a feel for it and, and test it out see if like see if the schema compiles if it's even valid syntax or not um, in terms of like okay you wanted to deploy to prod with a dream query I want to say like Apollo clients might have some smarts to to do that with like client side resolvers or right. something like that but um, yeah I feel like it would be simpler to just kind of like add a to-do string or something. Yeah. So you you mentioned um, people will write their dream query in a Google Doc, so you can kind of like have reviewers take a look at it. Um, maybe like, hey, this already exists under this other name, or this doesn't exist at all. Um, you so you have this small team of uh, schema reviewers, or is that kind of like anyone uh, on the teams? Right. So um, I I think I've heard this like. Uh, from like a lot of companies now, but um, like other people, when when we first started the GraphQL schema, it's this like really small, um, you know, uh, schema, and and you want to kind of control. You want to be the gatekeepers of what's being added to the schema because it's kind of new to a lot of people, and there's not a lot of um, what's what I'm looking for, like existing. You know, knowledge baked into the yep. schema that people would just copy and paste from. So you kind of want to bootstrap that and be protective of what's being added. So it was me and like um, like five five other people or six other people for, for, the, for the longest time for like the first year, year and a half that we were doing it, and um, we, we would give shippets to all of the um, to all of the schema changes that came through, mm -hmm. and we're trying to transition into a space where. We'll just let anyone add stuff to the schema. Um, we're in this like middle phase now, where um, you know th there's still like a um, protection on who can pick ship it, um, but kind of anyone can sign up to be a schema reviewer nice. and go through like the, the learning module. Um, we spent a lot of time on documentation and 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 teaching people um, how to do schema stuff. Um, that's been like probably as big of an effort as like the actual technical efforts, I want to say. Right. Yeah. How did you do that? Like the teaching, is that like great documentation or like actively teaching like workshops? Um, mostly just documentation, um, like a VPress site. Yeah. So, trying too hard, trying not to like rephrase or or copy what the like breathguild.org docs say, but putting it into uh, like a Yelp context. So lots of examples with users and businesses, um, stuff like that, and then kind of okay, how do you use our abstractions? And what are some like schema do's and don'ts? We have a whole page on that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of like stuff we've had to like figure out, like nullability, like what should be null, what what should what should not be null. We're actually still trying to think through that one, so that that's a discussion I'm like really interested in having. If anyone wants to have that, server-driven UI is like another like big thing we're thinking about at the moment. Um, so so all of these like here's how we think this should be done. Um, it's kind of like collected up in, in this documentation. People can go go and read that. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned um, nullability in the schema. That's something we're very much trying to uh, figure out or find like a good set of like general guidelines on how to kind of think about that and how um, just how it, how it plays out in in a schema. And it, it's it's not always clear. I think I think some things we kind of go back and forth on is like, is it, is something non-knowable required? Like, is that like, what, what does it mean for something to be non-knowable? Yeah. Um, and I, we, I, I'm not really happy with the, the guidelines we found yet. Like, I think there's still some more to dig around. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about like where you've, where you've landed on that or like kind of what the challenges are. 
It sounds like you've got a similar system to us where we've got like a bunch of services that make up an aggregated response. Right. And getting the data from any of those services can uh, fail for whatever reason. Yeah. So the fact that it is this uh, big, you know, blob of like network call here, network call that, like any of those can fail. And so that's like really well encoded in an allable field. Um, so I think everyone like gets the um, intent and, and the like theory behind it. Um, the real world implication though is that when you have the data um, response object, mm -hmm. it contains lots of maybe types, which is meh, okay if you're in JavaScript, you can use optional chaining maybe um, for mobile clients where you're doing like type generation of, um, you know, the, the like response objects um, and to like force unwrap all these things. And if you get something wrong, you could crash the app. Like it's, it's very tricky. Like a developer usually wants to just check, okay, is this object that I got back from the server like, is it valid? Can I, can I just like pass this to my components and mm -hmm. who knows how to, to deal with that? To have to kind of like go through every like leaf node on that object and check, is it null or not? Um, that's, that's something that we found people aren't so thrilled about. Right. Um, so finding the right balance there. And then what do you do about like allowed nullability? So if a um, business, type has a like claimed attribute, like has an owner claimed this business yet. Mm -hmm. um, that's like could legitimately be null. Um, so it's very hard to, to give a make everything null or make everything not null kind of guidance. And so then you're having to operate with shades of gray and yes. kind of teach what's what, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, but I like the idea that I've seen proposed in some blog posts, the idea of like having a client side um, direct, uh, having a directive in, in the schema, or I don't know, maybe it could be like a like language proposal or something um, that you could mark from a query, what I'm okay with being null and what I'm okay with not being null. And that mm -hmm. can kind of like bubble up. And so you'd get semantics that could be known to type generation. Um, yeah. I think that'd be really cool. I'd love to see some tooling in that space. Yeah, I think I've read that in um, an artsy blog post. I think it's them. They have a directive that like kind of like annotates an area of the query that's like, I really need this. Uh, right. Like if this one is null, I can't render the page at all. The rest is like kind of like more optional. Yeah, it's it's such a, it's hard. Sometimes I wish it was like kind of like proto buff and we just made everything nullable and, <laughs> and went forward <laughs> with that. Um, but it's true, the distinction between I'm null and that's supposed to represent something from the business versus I'm null because you can't see that or like there's an error is kind of weird. Yeah, um, yeah I always, like I think a, a good guideline for, for nullable fields like like the the claim idea is, is is a cool one. It's like your description should probably include what like if the field is null, here's why. Um, that helps a lot. But then it's kind of like it's not really machine readable, which sucks. So yeah, um, it's a hard one for us. What we we decided on is we notice most things that can be null in the end are object types. Like it's mm -hmm. rare we query a scalar and it's gonna it's going to be null because of an error because usually we fetch yeah. kind of like the, the parent object if that succeeded uh, we get the scalar field so that's kind of like our rule of thumb is like scalars are usually non-nullable object types really think twice if you want to make make it not nullable um yeah right the the, the argument i've heard kind of is okay if you want to like migrate the source of the data to be somewhere else, like maybe you make a new service that's like a super quick, more efficient call to get the data or something. I don't know, but um, I think like thinking about how um, you want to deal with it in the UI if part of the response fails, and being like, okay, well, I, I need I need partial results so I can display just the header and let the body load in as a retry later or something like that. But then, how often are people actually doing that rather than just like crashing the page and letting people to refresh. I don't know. It's 
it's a really tough problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, kind of like loading data from different places, um, I know you've been working on this other thing, another blog post actually you've made uh, about data loaders um, and kind of um, a way you can, you kind of generate them automatically based on your backing services. Um, can you, can you talk a bit about that? That's super interesting. Yeah. Um... Okay, so like I said, we have kind of lots of different backend services. Um, so that equates to like hundreds of endpoints. And we want to talk to those endpoints in, in the GraphQL server. So we started off doing like the dumb thing, just kind of like making a bunch of like network requests there and then like, okay, we need data loaders. So you add some data loaders and then those data loaders are each implemented slightly differently, like they're mostly copied and pasted. But because each endpoint is implemented slightly differently, like some of them, you know, accept like multiple keys and return you multiple responses. Some of them just kind of return you one thing at a time. Um, you know, in different, entirely wonderful, different shapes. So there's a lot of like variation, but a finite variation in the kind of how these endpoints can be implemented, but just enough variation to make it like infuriating to try and like read through all of the um, kind of human written data loaders because that affects how you call it in the result. You need to know how it's implemented. So our endpoints are all typed with, um, with Swagger. So that was kind of like a good starting point that, okay, at least we have like some type information somewhere. Mm -hmm. So we already had this like baseline of being able to generate um, like client libraries in Python, and that's kind of how services talk to each other at Yelp, usually through these like auto-generated Python client lips. So we generated some node client lips, which great, now we have like flow types use flow. Um, and so then we have like an additional layer of code gen, which is to declare a YAML file describing all of the different endpoints. And it's like, a, it's like a minimal thing where all you need to do is define what the uh, like lookup key is in that, in that thing. And then you, know, you, you run the code gen and it generates you data loaders that you can import and put onto the context object. And so that kind of like really normalizes how developers get data. And the, the leap here is that we don't want developers to have to think about data loaders. We don't want them to have to kind of think about this layer of abstraction because our developers are, were already familiar with the um, endpoints, like, you know, they'd written those endpoints. And um, yeah, having a um, known way in which that endpoint turns into a data loader in an expected predictable way. Um, yeah, now we have like, yeah, hundreds of data loaders, I guess, in, in the server. And um, yeah, that's kind of what the project is about. So let's say let's say I want to add um, a user loader uh, and I work at Yelp. Um, so in my mind, there's there's two things I want to know. Like the, um, So like which individual keys I want to load. So like for me, it'd be like I want to load from a user ID. Um, mm -hmm. And then I guess the other thing you'd provide is which endpoint is able to kind of like batch all of those together? Is that kind of like what the YAML file defines? Um, so the, the YAML file is like a mapping of the, the endpoint. So in, in Swagger, you get like a API name dot endpoint name. So you, you just kind of like map that into the, into the YAML file. And it has options for, OK, maybe the response object is nested or something under you know this like prefix. Um, so you can add that in the config file so you can like remove that random right. like nesting that that endpoint randomly provides. So inside of a data loader, you just get back like the object that, that you expect basically. Um, yeah. And then also worth mentioning that maybe someone, you know, let's say we have like a get user v1 endpoint or something. In the old world, there was nothing, nothing stopping someone from making like five different user data loaders that took different shapes of keys, um, which would mean you don't batch up stuff to that right. user endpoints anymore. So, 
Um, that's kind of like been another win for us there. Does that mean all your backing services can't uh, like expose a way to get something in a batch? Um, is that kind of like a convention you have or? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a convention that some of them have. Not all of them have um, batch versions of the endpoint. Some of them, it's just like a get one thing at a time. So that's like another config option in the YAML file is, is this a batch endpoint? If so, what is the batch key and what, what, what do you want to map it to? So you might have user IDs as like the thing that the endpoint takes. But when you do, you know, user.load, you want to pass user.load with user ID right. singular. So kind of you provide that mapping in, in the config file. Um, yeah, and, and so then in the implementation, it will create like a fake, um, you know, batch wrapper on top of Makes that. Makes sense. It's it's really interesting to me, uh, for better or worse, uh, that GraphQL kind of like imposes a shape on whatever is it's in front of. Uh, like, is it ever an issue where like there's this old service that you need to kind of like revive or add a batch endpoint uh, because it's too slow to like uh, do these individual kind of like calls or were, were things already kind of designed in a way that where batching and kind of like async loading like that works out of the box? Yeah, I think for the most part, I don't think we've had many use cases of where someone's noticed an endpoint being super slow in GraphQL nice. uniquely and they've had to go back and like change a bunch of stuff because a lot of these endpoints have been like battle tested and have been really well used, you know, on existing pages. Um, so all of the like super high traffic stuff that needs to be batched was, you know, already batched. So um, the years of experience we've kind of built up with with these endpoints has, has served us Very well. cool. We do have that use case at um, at Twitch where we have some. So Twitch used to be like a one monolith, and we actually were able to kill it uh, in after transitioning to a bunch of services. Uh, but we do have some old services that still are not batched, and um, we have an adapter in the data loader layer that makes it look in the application as if it is, but um, it's not. And it, all the requests just fire out in parallel. Um, so that they're not like serially waiting for like one to the other. Like it's just you get a lot more connections on the network, and sometimes that's an issue. But um, it's kind of a good adapter in the meantime. If a team's like, I need this feature, um, I'm working with a service that's not easy to batch or for whatever reason, uh, and it provides kind of a bridge for us to get the functionality out um, while still making it kind of like papering over the fact that it's not actually <laughs> batched. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, like in the end, like if your if your database, like at the end 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 of all the these calls, if your database can handle it, you're not too bad. Um, if it gets to the point where it can't, is where that gets hard. Yeah, we're um, only serving read requests right now, so in theory, that's like mm -hmm. you know very very scalable. Once mm -hmm. we do write operations, we'll have to think maybe a bit more about that. So is there no um, mutations in your schema so far? Not okay. yet, but um, if anyone wants to come help us work on that, then <laughs> yeah, yelp.com slash careers. Any <laughs> link to that, yeah. Um, how big is, there, is your GraphQL team? Um, is it kind of like, so like Tony and I were kind of like on specific kind of like API uh, at Teams is kind of like the, the same for you. I think you mentioned it was like kind of internal and not the external ones. Yeah. Um, I don't have any good answers for you on the external GraphQL stuff, but on the internal, it's, um, yeah, there, there's like a group of um, people behind it. Um, yeah. So um, I, I think we were chatting before we started the stream. Um, you're using Node, right? So the GraphQL kind of like gateway is written in Node, and are you using kind of like a um, a specific GraphQL library, or is that a, like all homemade? Um, sorry, the, I fizzled out. For, you repeat yep, that. Sorry. Um, your gateway is built using Node.js. Is that right? The GraphQL bar. Yes. Yes, we're we're a Python shop, but um, we went with Node for for this because. That's kind of at the time where um, 
a lot of tooling and stuff had been had been built that we wanted to use. So um, makes sense. Are you using um, something specific like Apple Server or um, Nexus, or is it kind of like homemade? Um, it's yeah, no, it's not definitely not homemade. Um, Apollo, yeah, Apollo stack nice. now. It's a uh, we're not in the node ecosystem on the server side at Twitch, and I always feel a little bit of like tooling envy uh, because that's where so much of the tooling seems to seems to exist at least at a, at the surface level. Like, uh, so I'm very jealous of all the nice tools that uh, the node ecosystem provides for GraphQL. It's kind of like the home ground. Yeah, we're we're lucky because um, we started off with this GraphQL monolith so uh we haven't yet talked about federation or anything like that um but that that's not something we do so we we, we still have everything written in the one graphql server mm -hmm. and small things like being able to split up where resolvers live is pretty neat and a lot of tooling that allows us to kind of enforce separation of how data can be threaded through things to make sure that you're only passing in like IDs and not kind of like arbitrary, um, you know, sets of stuff in as, as the parent object. So, um, yeah, the, the tooling is, is pretty nice. Um, and then it's like tooling that we're using, which is, I guess, not, um, you know, tied to any specific like server implementation, but the world of tooling, like, um, like GraphQL inspector and stuff like that. Um, yeah, really, really enjoying that. Nice. You mentioned um, kind of like enforcing boundaries. Is that, I think, what you just said, where you like you make sure like things are, are passed by ID so you can eventually kind of like split it up, but it's still a monolith. Are you using any like specific tools like linters to do that? Um, um, so we have, um, we use pre-commits and we have like a bunch of... Um, scripts that run at commit time to make sure that um you know people aren't um adding um bad stuff i guess i'm trying to think of like some good examples if i could share um it's possible that one day we might split up the uh, the schema well we're not exactly sure how we how we do that but um Having so we use flow. So have, having type safety is a huge win. So mm -hmm. making sure that um, we know what's going to be passed as the parent object is huge because because we can say okay if we know that everything that creates a user type or a business type only creates it by passing the ID as the parent object then that kind of gives us confidence that we could have a like user GraphQL service or something which just takes in ID and you know there, there's there's not too much like it's minimal refactoring we would have to do in the gateway side of things um so th there's a lot of like speculative stuff we're doing like that um things like generators sure that when people add new types um the the um, style in, in which we write resolvers, kind of like if it's an ES6 class versus just like a um, object literal, we have kind of conventions there. So yeah, basically we have like lots of scripts to enforce the conventions that we set up. That's very cool because like I feel like the um, feder federation seems amazing when you need it, but it seems like a lot of people will say like I need federation because I really need to separate my concerns, but they forget like that's a thing even if you have one code base you can still like design your your code base in a way that separates these concerns in the first place so i'm yeah. i'm really curious like have you because i we have a huge schema as well and kind of that that separation of concerns at the schema level hasn't been a pain at all um separation concern in code in general is a hard thing <laughs> Uh, especially with a with an old code base, but at the schema level, it hasn't been so much of a pain. I'm curious, have you been feeling these pains? Like, do you feel like you need to separate your schema across different services? Um, 
we've not hit that point yet. So there are signals that I kind of think we're looking out for to say, hey, we need to split this up. So things like how often can you push the service? Um, how long does the test suite take to run? Um, you know, the volume of errors, and is it, is it too noisy? So kind of the operational stuff, I think, is more challenging in terms of having a monolith. The separation of concerns at the code level, in the uh, schema, so we have like a SDL first approach. So in the, in the schema, we're pretty organized in terms of how we split up stuff. So you know, a folder per type, and then we make good use of kind of extending um, different types and you know, everything has its home. And then we have like ownership on types. So every if a type exists in the schema, we know who owns it. So I think we're in a pretty good place in terms of the, the, the schema, pure schema side of things. On the resolvers, we try and mirror that structure as well. So that kind of provides us like a just a con convention to help to help manage things. Um, yeah. Yeah. So connected and related. Yeah. One of the things that kind of dis distinguishes us from a public schema is that um, we have a, an allow list. Uh, we know what queries are going to be sent to us. And before a query can be sent, it has to be added to, to this allow list. And then, um, again, queries are associated with owners, the team who submitted that query. And so when stuff goes wrong, when a, and when a resolver fails, Unless it's a like async error or some infra error, if it's just like a normal resolver error, we can tie that back to the query that produced that error. So we can alert based on, hey, this query failed. And even though you know this like random feature team doesn't really care about this type, you're still using it, and you know I guess you're a heavy user of it. So um, you know at least you can kind of help triage and wake the people up who do know about it. So. That's kind of also been quite helpful. Yeah. It's interesting about like how ownership helps in operation in terms of like this thing's broken. Who do I poke to get it fixed? Uh, so I've had this problem, and I'm sure I think uh, Mark with a K, you've had this problem as well. Um, but when something happens with an underlying uh, service or, or data store, and we start getting errors in the API layer. Is that something, have you experienced like you get paged for it or like you, if someone's like, hey, GraphQL is not working, but really it's like, oh, the user's service data store is missing something. I don't know. Is that, do you use this ownership to drive like that kind of triaging or uh, do you still find, do you find yourself getting paged a lot for things that are not really in your area responsibility? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Lots to. Lots to unpack. Yeah. Okay. So. We have pretty good, so we have like custom error classes. Um, and okay. so if an error is produced by a uh, upstream service, like a service that we're calling, then instead of just getting like a generic, hey, uh, something went wrong, um, we worked very hard to, because we were getting paged so much, we worked very <laughs> hard to um, include the, like as much information as possible in, in the custom error object that gets displayed. and like Splunk lines and log lines. So when you see a GraphQL error, if it did come from like the user service or whatever, you would see resolver error, um, 
this is an upstream service error uh, because these service returned 500. Um, and then you can dig in more and if you go into Splunk and you can see the like response HTML um, mm -hmm. whatever from the upstream service. So having that um, observability is pretty nice um, and kind of our team who who own who will, will get woken up um, we know how to read that and that yeah that that's that really helps that makes a lot of sense that seems super useful do do you um so now that you tag kind of your errors like this you could determine if it's there's a problem with the graphical platform itself like whatever middleware is maybe your team is uh, taking care of or it's an underlying service do you do you build monitors based on that like can you exclude kind of like graphical platform errors and only page the underlying service team this way or would you still like if graphical returns a 500 because of an underlying service are you still kind of involved in an incident, for example? Yeah. So uh, we have a few services like this where it, uh, our, our team owns the GraphQL service, but we kind of don't really own any of the types in, in the service. We don't own any of the like application runtime code. Well, we, yeah, we own the, the infra, like the express server, the infra layer. And so if... Um, you know, processes are restarting, or the Docker containers are falling over, or if you know, running out of memory, or like infra level errors, we will get page twelve because we own that. We own that stuff. If there are GraphQL runtime errors, if there's resolver errors, um, we try and page the team who submitted the query that's failing, and we won't get alerted for it because it's not our query, and we hope that. Um, team can debug you know, themselves. Um, some of the time we'll, we'll get looped in. Um, some of the time we won't. A lot of the time we won't. So having being able to kind of separate, being able to separate out different classes of errors, um, yeah, that definitely helps us sleep a bit better. Yeah, that's great. Definitely taking note of that. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it I mean it I think it's just it's good to highlight that this is one thing that is a little harder when opting for GraphQL compared to to REST, just because you don't get that, you don't get the separation out of the box. Um, yeah. So Apollo um, Server has um, the the error code field, right? And so you can create custom errors, so you can give everything an error code, and any error that comes at the GraphQL layer you can add like a, a, a plugin or a hook. There's like multiple ways of kind of listening for GraphQL layer errors. And then you can emit a, a log line for that. And you can also emit log lines outside of GraphQL, you know, at the uh, like server middleware layer. Um, but every log line is tagged with a error code. And sometimes it comes from, from Apollo. Sometimes it comes from, you know, we're out of memory. Um, but yeah, kind of classifying based on that error code. Um, yeah, that's really helpful. Speaking of uh, observability, maybe we're going to go deeper into that. Um, I, this is something I find personally very challenging with uh, with GraphQL. Is like actually like besides errors, like finding out that something is misbehaving, especially in a context like yours where many different moving parts may be misbehaving. What kind of like instrumentation do you have in place? Is that I assume you already had instrumentations for anything that's service communication, um, but is there anything on top, like GraphQL specific? Um, so all of our service, all of our services are deployed on Pasta, which is um, kind of the platform as a service architecture that that Yelp runs on, and lots of blog posts about that. Um, but all it all runs on Docker, and so you get kind of some Docker stats. Um, that are automatically um, pulled into a graph for you. So things like memory usage and CPU usage and CPU throttling, um, that's kind of a big one. It's like an early indicator of, um, hey, you should probably give it some more you know, memory or something because of garbage collection or whatever. Mm. Um, so having those three things, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, and then there's kind of like custom things that we want to keep an eye on, such as how often are um, 
use like the, the cluster module. So how, how often are like subprocessors restarting? Like why are they restarting? Um, so like interesting events, I guess, that we care about, we will explicitly log for. Um, we also do distributed tracing of requests. So you can um, you can like load yelp.com slash whatever and see like a tree view of every hop, every service that was hit in that request. And we don't do like per resolver uh, tracing because it would just like balloon in complexity, but you can see the um, resultant network requests to the backend services that are made. Mm -hmm. um, what's really helpful is uh, we use GraphQL Playground in dev, which does give you the per resolver, you know, breakdown and how long each thing took. So that that's that's pretty helpful. And it, it does that because you're um, probably kind of like responding with some extension for uh, the performance. So you do measure it in some way, or is that kind of like out of the box with, uh, with the server you're using? Um, in production right now, we don't do, we don't kind of return anything right. in the extensions fields. Um, the client just gets like the minimal response it needs. In, in, in dev, um, you do get that extensions response. That's just kind of like, um, yeah, I think that's just kind of like, you get that free with, with, with follow. Nice. So um, being able to kind of drill down and see what's happening in a dev or stage environments is really helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, so in production, you're mainly focusing on the, um, the backing services. Um, you don't have necessarily, like you can't see the per field timings for, for a certain field, is that right? Um, not yeah. yet, but I think we're going to be working on that. Yeah, nice. Um, do, you, do you use like a distributed tracing framework or is that just via like um, logging a unique ID across every system, like to like logs that you read with like Splunk or something like that? Um, Zipkin is, uh, Zipkin. is yeah. Yeah, we tried to do per field tracing and it was... It's kind of weird because since we're so IO network heavy, um, most of the time you're either waiting on the network uh, or you're instantly returning the value from memory. So um, sometimes it could be with like a data loader, you could you could wait one time on the network and then instantly pull it out of the cache the next time. Uh, so it was uh, it was a lot of information. It was hard to find a good use for it because you kind of want to know like what's breaking and what's slow. I think I really like the approach of just logging the network request from the service. Like I think that's a that's a good um, middle ground where you still get like a high value information, but without having so much baggage uh, yeah. in terms of like kind of useless data. Yeah, I think one thing I'd like more kind of insight on is to the like crunch time, you know, the, the overheads of uh, GraphQL and how much time that's adding. But I, I just like kind of most time is spent waiting network stuff. And you can already see that in the distributed tracing breakdown. And yeah, if this like slow endpoint is slow, then you can go in and fix that. And then Gray will be super fast again. That's the theory. At least. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. The, I think that's totally right. I think most of the time it's like spent somewhere on a network, like either to a database directly for us or uh, querying from a service and it's true that like field resolver timings if I, I look at any logs and even like people I see who who have this yeah just like observability of fields and use data loader is so often kind of useless because as you said Tony like one field might be returning in like one millisecond from memory but that's because one other field like had all the costs it loaded like literally everything because it's that's how kind of like the async process worked and then you request again yeah. and it might be another field this time depending on like the the ordering so it gets really hard to see what actually is slow so i agree like just seeing a query and what got enqueued or what got loaded on the side seems almost better at this point yeah again i think because we have the luxury of knowing the shape of all requests that are going to come um, mm. 
we, you know, developers will have tested queries on dev uh, to make sure that it's not like horribly slow and kind of they can they can dig in more there. Um, but I don't know what you would do if you're in a public setting where you can get any type of request. I think like budgets and um, I, I do know on the public GraphQL side of things, we kind of have like depth limits and, right. and yeah, stuff like that. So that makes sense. Yeah, the whole the whole instrumenting data alerts is hard. But as you said, like since you know, coming back to like the dream query thing, since you know the queries ahead of time, even kind of like when they're designed, it sounds like. Do you use anything like um, kind of like the the allow list thing where no client can start like requesting arbitrary queries, um, or is it kind of an in between approach? Like, is it kind of like lock locked down to only queries that pass through your process it's yeah it's, it's entirely locked down okay. so um you you cannot curl you curl, you cannot curl it with an arbitrary query um once you once your team feels comfortable we don't have like a process for like when you can submit the query but like once you get a share this on your client branch um you can uh, run a custom command tooling that we have to submit the query to the allow list and then um, it will be publicly um, queryable. So we yeah, crunch like a shard of it and um, store it in a database somewhere. And it's really just kind of a protection to make sure that we don't have malicious third party people, you know, trying all sorts of um, yeah. you know, interesting shapes of data and making sure people are conscious about, okay, yeah, I really want to query this the shape of data, like I thought about it. Um, yeah, and like there's a paper trail. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. I'm I'm jealous of this knowing queries <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like a nice property. Um, do you use like a persistent query uh, protocol or? It's um, kind of hacked into the server right now. Um, homegrown. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. But um, it it's. Because we've done that, we have been able to build a lot of tooling on top of that. So um, when you send pull requests, we can sort of show you um, all sorts of insights. Like if you're trying to delete a field, then we can say, hey, you're trying to delete a field change. But we can also say it's breaking change, but don't worry about it because no one has been querying this field. Nice. Uh, over the last two weeks, or it's a breaking change. Really, you should not delete this because this, like these, like five queries have been hitting it in the last two weeks, and this is like a really super popular query that uses this field. Um, it's owned by these people. If you really want to delete it, go talk to them. Um, yeah, that, that that kind of thing. I love That's this really kind nice. of tooling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Is that um, is that powered by? Part of it is GraphQL Inspector, I guess, for the breaking change, but then you tied in your own usage queries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Just because I'm curious, um, are you using um, uh, GitHub Actions to do that, or like kind of like your own GitHub app kind of thing? And um, that side of things is uh, is all homegrown for now. Okay. Uh, I think we're undergoing some changes there. But um, for now, it's uh, yeah, all homegrown. Sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really like the I because I know GraphQL Inspector does allow you to just like integrate directly with with uh, GitHub stuff, which which looks really nice and comments kind of per right. um, per field and I guess GraphQL Doctor does like a yeah some of the thing as well, which looks really interesting. Yeah. Um... GraphQL Doctor, I, I think it's pretty much the, the same thing. Our our usage data is is uh, interesting to get as well as been. We we have so many different queries that we can't like the cool thing about you you know exactly like which queries have been hitting. We know that as well, but we can't show it all to you. But uh, uh, yeah. we have kind of these sweet chat ops that people can use in Slack to know how many yeah. times the field have been used and everything. <laughs> And another interesting thing is like usually when you want to see how often has user dot first name been used, you can just kind of see oh it's been used like 
20,000 times or I'm just making a number here, but you can see like how many times the result has been hit. Um, but what we can also do is we can show you how many queries that have been used in the last two weeks that it appears in. And that's kind of like a really interesting kind of metric to see like how many teams use this field rather than mm -hmm. how many, you know, queries use this field. Sorry, yeah, how, how many um, like network requests have, have used this field, I guess. Right. I'm curious because um, this is something I see often. Do you, um, when, let's say somebody builds a new client that will use GraphQL, um, do you kind of like force them to identify themselves in some way, like a client ID or something so that people can... Can you track pretty accurately like a query to a client or like a repo or like where that query is coming from? Um, right now, the short answer is no, because um, we have only had the use case of uh, our web, um, our web app to talk to GraphQL. But now we're kind of getting into more interesting spaces where like the the um, mobile web app is going to be talking to GraphQL, or is talking to GraphQL, and we're also um, exploring, or well, we are using GraphQL on, um, on mobile apps, which is like very exciting for us. Um, we are going to start identifying, um, kind of getting more resolution on user agents. Yep. Um, but that's like not a, that's not enforced, I guess. I think it will be on the yeah. mobile endpoints, but um, I guess also from like the, the the web app side of things, it all looks like Yelp.com. Um, the when the browser when when a user is in their browser, they don't know what like service or package that page got served from. Right. So, um, yeah, the short answer is no. The long answer is <laughs> also no. TBD. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Um, it, we're almost at the top of the hour. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. We've learned a ton. Uh, it looks, I'm amazed by the internal tooling you've got. That's, that's really amazing and uh, inspiring. Um, is there anything you wanted to plug? Um, we've got the careers link in the chat and a few blog posts. Anything else? Um, yeah, the, the careers thing, um, the, the blog posts. Um, yeah. Hi to, hi to my team as well. Webcore, client data working group. Yeah. Shout out. All right. Shout out. <laughs> um, Tony, do we have a guest um, for, for next week? Yes, we do. We have, uh, we have, uh, I, I, I know the Twitter name the best, Sashi. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she, changes, she changes her name all the time on Twitter, uh, usually to match the season. Um, and uh, she she works at Twitter, uh, and she's she's done a, a bunch of good work on proposing uh, techniques to handle errors in GraphQL. Um, so uh, we'll be talking with her next week, and I'm I'm super interested into digging into error design. Uh, it's once I heard her proposal, I was like, wow, I wish uh, I could time travel and go back and rewrite my <laughs> entire API to use this. Um, yeah, the uh, I think so. the, it's kind of like a union approach and like result types and everything. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing. I'm excited as well. I'm I'm really interested to talk to her and, and figure out how uh, how this worked out in practice and I don't know any other tidbits of wisdom uh, that she can drop. Uh, be very much appreciative. Uh, so very much looking forward to that. And uh, Mark, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat. I'm I'm really impressed with like uh, Yelp's internal tooling. So, uh, pretty jealous uh, of some of these things. Uh, and highly recommend reading the, the blog post Mark's mentioned. Um, we we take the same kind of approach as the Dream Query, although we don't have as as cool a name as it. Uh, <laughs> I really really like that terminology. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that one. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. So, so Thank on. you so much, Mark. Um, for a few of our shout-outs, um, we now have an official podcast, so whatever, Apple or Spotify or whatever, you can find it. It's Graphical FM. Um, and I'll post the YouTube channel where this video will be on after. We're just missing one follower to hit 100, so we can have a not-ugly URL like I just posted. So, I mean... Well, maybe I'll do it <laughs> now. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much again. Thanks, Mark, again uh, for coming on. Thanks. Thank you, Mark.
Thank you.